My father's quite strange. Uh, if you know him, then I'm sure you'll agree. I'm seeing a few smiles already. Um, yeah, he's a bit strange. He, he, he goes through phases of picking up different hobbies, and they're not your usual hobbies. Uh, recently, he's taken up carving, whittling, taking a block of wood and cutting away the excess to make uh, whatever he decides to make. And I look at it, and I think, how on earth does he do this? Because he's got quite stubby, fat fingers, and he's not got the most patience. Because whittling or carving is hard. You have to, first of all, see the image, and then you have to take your knife and chuck off the biggest chunks of the wood, the excess, and then after you've managed to do that without cutting yourself, you have to go really, really fine. Millimeters of wood, the smallest details. If you go too far, you've cut a chunk in the image and start again. There's a lot, if you're, if you're especially carving a small thing, there's a lot of excess that you need to cut away. Now, not exactly the same, but we are very similar to those blocks of wood. We come with all of our ideas, we come with all of our habits and our lifestyle, and we come before God and we say, look, I'm amazing. And God looks at us and says, you're just a block of wood. But God looks at us and he sees the image that should be there. And so, as it were, he cuts away the excess. All the wrong ideas here, all the sins there, until eventually we come out as the desired image. His image. If, you, if you're a Christian this morning, that's the process that you're in. We come with all of these wrong ideas we think we know who God is. Maybe you're here this morning and you've come off the street or you come regularly and you say, yes, I know who God is. I definitely know who God is. God is ABC. Maybe you're right. Maybe you're wrong. Have a look at the rest of the human race and decide which one you are because we tend to quite often be wrong. Do you come and you say, well, I hear from my favorite atheist on my favorite podcast God is a, a cruel dictator and I, I should have nothing to do with him, so I don't really know why I'm here. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you've come to church uh, for all your life uh, and you go away and you listen to your favorite preacher on, uh, during the week uh, and you don't really read your Bible too much, but your favorite preacher, he tells you who God is. Now, he may be right, but how do you know? Unless God tells you himself. You see, we are the block of wood. Every other human is the block of wood. And we're sinful. We're fallible. We fail. We distort the image of God in our minds. And don't worry, it's not just you and me here this morning. It's everybody who has ever existed. And how do we know that? Well, we're in the book of Exodus. What is the book of Exodus about? God's people, the Israelites, they're enslaved by the Egyptians. They're put under heavy labor. And they cry out to God, save us. God, in his mercy, raises up Moses. And he works through Moses, showing the ten plagues, the mighty arm of the Lord. Look how powerful God is. And so, Pharaoh eventually says, I will let your people go. And they leave. And after a few days or a few weeks, they get to the Red Sea. 
And they look at the waters and like, well, where do we go now? <coughs> and then someone turns around and they see a dust cloud on the distance. Pharaoh's coming. And he's not taking this, them back into slavery. No, he's coming to wipe them out. They're caught between a rock and a hard place, the hammer and the anvil. So what do they do? What, what do you think they would do? Having just seen the mighty arm of the Lord, God working powerfully to save them, what do you think they'll do? Do they cry out to him again? No. No, they don't. They look at Moses and they point at him and say, why have you done this? It was better for us to be in Egypt than to die here by the water. Moses tells them to shut up and he looks and he prays to God as he should uh, and God saves them by parting the Red Sea and the Israelites go through. The, Isra- uh, the Egyptians try to follow and God closes the sea uh, and the Egyptians are wiped out, the Israelites are saved. But that bit of grumbling is just a taster for what we see throughout the rest of the book. Now they're wandering in the desert and so they say to Moses, I'm hungry. They grumble, so God provides food. I'm, I'm, I'm thirsty, they grumble, so God provides water. Now I don't like your food, give me something else. Grumbling after grumbling after grumbling, uh, and then we get to the lowest point, which is in the chapter uh, 32. We're not going to look at it, because we'll be there for too long. There's so much there. But the lowest point, God tells Moses, come up onto the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And Moses tells them this, I will be gone 40 days and 40 nights don't break anything and he goes and after a while the, the Israelites are like well he's been gone a few days now he's probably dead so they turn to Aaron Moses' brother and he, then they say give us a new God or give us a new Moses as it were give us something new uh, <laughs> and Aaron collects the gold and he forges a calf a golden calf God, who worked all those mighty miracles to save them, not a few months before, they've replaced him with a creature, a calf. And then what does Aaron say? He looks at them and he says, These are your gods, O Israel, that brought you up out of Egypt. They've distorted the image of God in their mind. They've, they've gone so far. They, they haven't just cut a bit too much off the, the wooden block, as it were. They've completely severed it in half and burnt it. They've gone so far. They've distorted the image of God in their minds. They have no idea who God is or what God is like anymore. Surely that's the end of them. No, as we'll see here today, that just as God fixes their distorted image... And shows them himself. So he shows us who he is. So we've got three points this morning. uh, And the first is the call of Moses. We find that in verse 18 where we began uh, our our reading in in chapter 33. Chapter 33 verse 18. Um, After Moses going back down the mountain to deal with the golden calf incident. He comes back up to talk to God. And God's like stand aside because I'm about to destroy the Israelites. Because they are a stiff-necked people and they are prone to wandering. Moses stands in the gap. He stands in the gap uh, and he says, No, Lord, if anyone's to be blotted out from your book of life, if anyone's to be killed, let it be me. 
So God relents. And you think, well, that's the end of uh, that sequence of stress for Moses. And he's a very stressed man. He's, got a fa- he's facing a massive task. He's leading uh, a whole country, a whole group of people, a whole nation from one area to the next. And if you deal with people on a regular, regular basis, you know how hard that can be. And he's dealing with thousands. And they don't make it easy for him, as we've said. They grumble and they complain and they point at him. And we see through the story of the Exodus signs of depression in Moses. That's how hard it is for him. But now, you think that's the end. God has agreed not to destroy them. No, that doesn't, that's not the end. The cherry on top, as it were. God doesn't want to go with them. God says, depart from me. I will not go with you anymore. So God's people are now just a people. So Moses comes and we see a back and forth between Moses and God. Please come with us. No, I will not go with your people. No, please go with us. Fine, I will go with you, Moses, but I will not go with them. No, that's not good enough. Please go with us. And eventually, God says yes. We see that in verse 17 of chapter 33. And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you, and I know you by name. Finally, the the stressful situation is fixed. And so what, what would you do in that situation? You've just been um, trying to persuade the, the God of the universe to come with you uh, and to support your cause, to remember his promises. What would you do in that situation after he's agreed to go with you? Well, you'd say, thank you very much, sir. I'm back down the mountain and we'll just go on from there. You don't want to push anything else. He's already been angry But Moses doesn't do that. Because even when God agrees to go with them, he wants more. What does he do? He stays on the mountain and straight away, verse 18, then Moses said, now show me your glory. He's not just asking for a little thing. He's not just asking for a bigger package. He's asking for a huge thing. What's he doing? Why is he doing this? Well, you see, a realization is set in that Moses has been called by God. He, 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 he realizes that God has revealed himself to Moses. God has used Moses. God has spoken to Moses. God has spoken through Moses. God knows Moses, but Moses doesn't really know God. He knows about God. He sees the arm of the Lord, but who is God? He realizes that there's still more to know. There's a mystery, and he wants to know more. And that can be the same for us. Maybe uh, we've been a Christian for uh, 10 years. Let's take a number like that, 10 years. And you kind of read your Bible every day. And you kind of know about God from Sunday school and and from the sermons on Sunday. But nothing's really clicked. It's not quite there just yet. You know a lot about God. But you wouldn't say you know him as you would know your mother or your father. Maybe 
you know nothing about God. And so, of course, you understand that there's more to know about God. But I would argue that even those that study theology in university, well, a lot of them may not have even the slightest idea of the character of God. Why? Well, think about it. When I was growing up, I was given a load of little books that described animals. So let's, I opened the page and there's a dog. There's a picture of a dog. Quite a nice looking dog. And it's labelled, well, there's the ears on the top, there's the paws, and there's the tail. Close the book, I know about a dog. It wasn't until I got a dog that I realised how much work they are, how messy they are, uh, but how brilliant they are. Uh, There was that separation of understanding, isn't there? I can see a picture of a dog and I can label the parts of it. That's knowing about a dog. Yeah, that's knowing about a dog. Yeah, I can label it. The difference is knowing a dog. It's apprehension versus comprehension. Comprehension is uh, understanding it in your mind. Apprehending it is taking it in your hands and seeing it for yourself. Which are you this morning when it comes to God? Do you know about God? Do you know a lot about God? Or do you know him for yourself? Do you comprehend God? Or have you apprehended God? Is he yours this morning? Because if he's not, well, we can be like Moses and we can ask boldly, show me your glory. And if he is ours already, we can say with Moses, show us your glory. Because the mystery of God, there's always more to know about God. There's always more more, uh, to learn from him. So that eventually we can say with the psalmist, Show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truths. And teach me. For you are God, my saviour. And my hope is in you all the day long. My friends, we can ask boldly. We can come boldly. We can ask God, show us your glory. Where do you stand this morning, I wonder? Well, that's the call of Moses. Well, what's the answer of God? What's the answer of God? Does he say no? Does he uh, rush him off the mountain? No, he doesn't. And the Lord said, verse 19 of chapter 33, And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. God says, okay, I will do it. God agrees. He sets a time and a place. He says, first you have to go away and make new stone tablets, because Moses broke them. Uh, Moses is an angry guy, go read it. He broke the stone tablets, the first one, so now he has to make um, the second lot. And so he gets an evening to go and do this. And so Moses goes down uh, the hill, or the mountain, and he starts chiseling away, probably in his tent. And he's probably thinking, well, what's going to happen tomorrow? What's going to happen? God has said, we see that in verse uh, 20, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. God has just said that. So I've just asked to see God. I've just asked to see his glory. What, what am I going to see? If I, if I can't see him, what's going what's to happen? He's wondering, well, is God going to uh, write something out or make something to show me what's going to happen? And his uh, 
mind is probably going, thinking, oh, God might be like this, he might be like that. If you had an evening like this, the, the, the evening before you go and meet with God, what would you be thinking? How would you describe God? Maybe you'd say omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient. Big words, just meaning all-powerful, all-knowing, and everywhere. Is that how you would describe God? They are true. They are true, don't get me wrong. But we get them from a combination of scripture and logic. They, we get them by digging around in the text. It's going through the text, between the lines, as it were, help of commentators and other theologians uh, God does say he is all-powerful, but it is only by saying, well, for God to be God, then he must be powerful more so than anything else in all creation. Scripture and logic. And so we dig, don't we? We, we try and find new things, different nuggets, as it were. Uh, and so maybe in your morning Bible studies, you look at the Word and you read, and now... Oh, that's not quite done it, so let's get the commentator out, your favorite commentator or your favorite preacher, and we're digging around in the text. And you dig, and you dig, and you dig, and digging is good, don't get me wrong. I had to dig to do this sermon. But if all we do is dig, then we miss the words on the page. Peter Enns helpfully says, we should not focus on the God behind the scenes, and thereby lose sight of the God of the scenes, the God presented to us in scripture do we dig too much maybe do we focus too much on the descriptions of uh, the theologians that they give us do we focus too much on what the commentary says and I'll read my bible later and actually now all I do is I read my commentary I've done that do we do that too much do we forget to look ourselves and so now we come and we say, God ought to be like this, compared to what God actually is. Paul talks of uh, those that didn't take him at his word and went and tested the words he said to see if he was true. We should do likewise. Because now we get a struggle. And the commentators will say everything, A, B, C, D, whatever it is. But what does the passage say? No one may see my face and live. So what's he going to do? What is God going to do? Well, in the absence of sight, God says, I will describe myself to you. So Moses is up on the mountain. He goes in the cleft of the rock. And then we're going to spend a while in verses 6 to 7 of chapter 34. The Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord, the Lord. The, these are the first descriptive words of God about himself. The first words. So what words is he going to use? The Lord, the Lord, the mighty and powerful God. No, he doesn't quite use that. The Lord, the Lord, the holy and just God. No, he doesn't say that. What does he say? The Lord, 
the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. Is that your God this morning? Compassionate and gracious? He who looks on our suffering and cares? Grace is unmerited favor. We're sinners. We've turned away from God. We deserve nothing good. And yet God gives us good things in abundance. It's not raining. That's a good thing. You are breathing. That's a good thing. You will go home to lunch. That is a good thing. Common grace. Extra grace. He has sent Jesus. Compassionate and gracious. Here we see God revealing his character. This is not the arm of the Lord. I've said that a few times to show his power, his strength. No, this is his character, his heart, out of which all his emotions come from. And immediately, I've just said emotions. How can I say emotions and God in the same sentence? God cannot have emotions, surely. No, that's not right. Well, we look at Scripture and we see he does. Dane Ortland helpfully said, let us not dishonor God by so emphasizing his transcendence that we lose a sense of the emotional life of God which our own emotions are an echo of, even if a fallen and distorted echo. God is not a platonic ideal, immovably austere beyond the reach of human engagement. In other words, God is not a brick wall to defend his people, and that's it. God is not a hammer to crush his enemies, and that is it. God is God, a compassionate and gracious God. He is loving and he is kind. He is not just a hammer or a brick wall. No, he has emotions, and we get our emotions from him. They're not the same. We're fallen, we're we're sinners, but his are perfect. God has emotions. And we should praise him because of that. When he interacts with us, those emotions might become something else. So God's love is so perfect that when it interacts with humans, it must be in the form of mercy and grace. That's weird before you. Go have a look at that. That's, that's huge. Go have a look at the definitions of mercy and grace. And you'll see how perfect love has to become that to interact with us. He sees our foolishness and he reaches out. He hears our cry and he answers. We see that with the Israelites. That's what he's done already. Time and time again they cry and he answers. He goes on, doesn't he? Still in verse 6. The compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger. We don't need to say much more, do we? We've just looked at the grumbling of Israel. He's put up with them thus far. He hasn't destroyed them, although they deserve it. He puts up with you and me. I was a horrible child. I don't know how my parents put up with me. But if they can put up with me, and they're sinners, our loving Heavenly Father puts up with us as well. Slow to anger. Abounding in love and faithfulness. Abounding in love. Not a little bit of love. Not enough love. Not exceeding love, but abounding. It's a picture of a river burst in its banks. That's why David can say, my cup, it overflows. Abounding in love 
and abounding in faithfulness. He will not let his people go. Go read the rest of the Old Testament. He does not let his people go. Though they they wander, though they sin, though they go to other gods, though they disobey him directly, he does not let his people go. Behold your God, as he describes. Behold your God in his own words. Did you come this morning saying, that's my God? Because if so, praise him. If not, maybe it's time we need to realign some of our ideas. There's a lot more to God than just these words, but they're his description. Not a load of our ideas, but his words. Moses asked to see God's glory, and what was he shown? We go back to uh, chapter 33 and verse 19. I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you. I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you. Goodness and description of God. But verse 7 goes further, doesn't it? Forgiving the iniquity and sin, but will by no means clear the guilty. You see, the goodness of God also includes the justice of God. God must be just if he is to be good, and he must be just if he is to be God. He cannot forgive everything freely. That's not how it works. You would say the same if a murderer, a serial killer, walks into a courtroom and a judge looks at him and he hears all the evidence and the jury say he is guilty, but he looks at him and he says, I'll forgive him and lets him go. That's not love. How many more people will be hurt because of that? That's not love. Justice is love. And so sin must be punished. Is this your God this morning? And finally, our third point, the journey forward. We're in uh, the last few verses of our reading. What happened? Moses falls to the ground and he worships. He asked to see God's glory and he was astounded. And he says... If I have found favour in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. What a prayer. And the Lord said, I am making a covenant with you. Before all your people, I will do wonders never before seen in any nation in all the world. The people you live among will see how awesome it is that I, the Lord, will do for you. God agrees to go with them, the journey forward. Everything's changed. This is a new era. It's a a revelation. What, What happens because of this? Well, now Israel knows that they're not dealing with some faraway figure that doesn't care. No, they know they have a saviour, a God who cares dearly for them. They understand now that sin has a cost. And so from this comes the temple and the sacrifices that temporarily fix the problem of their sin. 
And this changes everything because you look at the rest of the Old Testament and you see links to this passage over and over and over again. This is their God now. Not some calf made of gold that doesn't move. This is their God. And they fail. They fail over and over and over again. But now the relationship has grown. It's no longer one-sided. God has revealed himself to them. And God knows them himself. But you say, what about me? That's great for Moses. He went up onto the mountain and he got to uh, be covered with the hand of God. He got to hear all of this. And then he comes down and later on in chapter 34, it says his face is radiant. He shone with the glory of God like the moon reflects the sun. That's great for him. But what about me? I can't go up on a mountain and ask God to show me his glory and then he passes by. This won't happen again. You can try it and it, well, I'm not. Who am I to argue against God? But I doubt very highly that this will happen if you ask. It's happened once. You have it written down. Where do I fit into this? Well, my friends, I would say we have a far greater experience of the heart of God than Moses ever did far greater you see God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son Jesus that is the heart of God embodied in flesh one writer says if you pull back the skin of the terminator you get the robot if you pull back the skin of Jesus you get pure undefiled love see Jesus is the heart of God Jesus is these words itself Jesus is God let us not uh, forget that but we also see a parallel in Matthew 11 verses 28 to 29 where Jesus says come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest for my burden is easy and my yoke is light my heart is gentle and lowly. It's the same heart. The heart of Jesus in Matthew 11 is the same heart as we've read here in Exodus 34. They're the same thing. You put them together and you get just a bit more of a description of God. We don't have to go up onto a mountain. We don't have to pray to God that we may see his glory no Jesus is the image of the invisible God Colossians says Jesus is that image of God and we can see his face and live he has revealed himself through his son we don't need a mountain anymore we've got Jesus he is the heart he is God and we can come to him and he cares how many times do we have to read in the gospels that Jesus had compassion on them he cares. He cares more than you or I could ever understand. Do you know him this morning? Is he your God? Because now if Christ is our saviour, our king and our friend, then we stand at the cross and like Moses, we behold the glory of God. But not covered with God's hand. No, covered in the blood of Christ, that we may be washed clean. 
clothed in his righteousness. And one day, one day, we shall see God's face pure as it is in heaven. One day. Is he your saviour this morning? Have you been washed in the blood of Christ? Has he died for your sins? Because if he hasn't, then this is not your God. And that heart is not the same as it would be for those that are his, his people. Is this your God this morning? Do you know him? I read a quote earlier from Peter Enns, and that was, wasn't the full quote. I'll read it now. We should not focus on the God behind the scenes and thereby lose sight of the God of the scenes, the God presented to us in Scripture. God is high, exalted, and mighty, but he's also near and approachable. Indeed, he wants to be approached. If you don't know him this morning, come to him, please. Come to him. If you know him, come to him again. Find your God as he describes.